Now, this is very contradictory to what we like to talk about in modern church. Sometimes suffering honors God. Now, tonight we're in John chapter 11. In the first 16 verses is what we're covering today. So if you want to follow along, that's where you open up to John chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 16. Now, what we're going to see is an interesting set of relationships in how they interact with Jesus. Now, here's the thing about relationships. They're unique. You act differently around people often, the better you know them. Now, you, can, you tend to be more straightforward or, in another word, rude to the people you love the most because there's no, there's no barriers to communication. The politeness is gone. Now, as an illustration, to give you an idea of what I mean by this, if you don't know, when I met Juliet, who is my wife, in case you haven't heard, Juliet, we had this group of friends. That's how we met. We, were, we had a mutual group of, of friends. And so because she was friends with some people that I was friends with, we ended up in the same circle for a while. Uh, and when we met and when that circle filled up and, and we met each other, my reaction was, wow, she is pretty. Her reaction was, I can't stand this guy. <laughs> Where did you find him? He's the worst. And she, you know, she's not wrong, but she married me, so <laughs> miracles do happen. But the thing she didn't really, one of, one of the multitude of things that she didn't like about me is that I didn't put my best foot forward the first time I met her. Because that's what she's used to, is the social convention of when you meet someone for the very first time, they're often very polite um, and kind. And you know they don't really say what's on their mind all the time. There's, a, there's a, a shield that's usually up that you have to penetrate over time getting to know people. Uh, and it takes a while for all of the facade to go away before you get to meet the real person. And so when she met me, as is my usual fashion, uh, there was no shield and no facade. And so her thought was, if this is the best this guy has to offer, why do any of you hang out with him? He is terrible. But the truth is, after a year goes by and I'm the same guy, she realized that there was no facade and that I wasn't changing and that it wasn't me trying to make an impression, it was just me being myself. And then she started to actually go, oh, that's actually kind of attractive because you don't have to work to find out who this person is. You don't have to break down walls to get to who they are. But that's not the case with, with most people. In fact, when you, this is often, this is the friendship test, right? The how close are you when you are hanging out with someone Right now, if you go to their house, are you knocking on the door? Or are you ringing the doorbell? Or can you just walk right in? 
can you, do you open their fridge because you're so welcome? Or do you wait until they ask you if you want, want a drink, right? Do you hang out in the kitchen or do you hang out in the living room? Do you walk through the front door because you're still kind of getting to know that person? Or do you go through the garage or the side door or the back door that the family enters in? Because it's how intimate you are with that person is how you act in their house because of all of the boundaries that are put down, right? As you get to know someone better, as you hang out more, as you get to know them, you become less of a guest and more part of the family. Now, for me, there was a, there was a family in my youth, uh, one of their members is here today, who I just became ingrained in the family. It went from the very first meeting when I was in third grade of let's, sure, you can invite your friend over, and he can stay the night and hang out with us. This guy's name was Rob, and he was my best friend for years. And I hung out with the family, and it was, you know, you, you have dinner, you eat whatever's in front of you because you want to be polite, and you stay the night, and, you know, you be as nice and, and as possible, um, and you don't act crazy. But over time, because I had spent so much time with that family, that house kind of became my house. It went from knocking on the door to entering through the side door through the garage um, and knocking on that door because I became more like the family to eventually just being able to walk in the house whenever I wanted to because I was considered one of the kids. As time goes on and as you spend time with people, you get more intimate and your relationships closer and the barriers break down. So what we're going to see is people who are really close to Jesus. And let's see how they react. Now, in the last couple of chapters, we've been dealing with some frustration that has boiled over because the Jews can't stand that Jesus is healing people on the Sabbath. And Jesus has been healing illnesses and ailments. And what we find out today is something a bit different. So it says, now a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. So we zoom in and we find out that a guy named Lazarus is sick. He lives in the town of Bethany, which just so you get a glimpse of, you can picture a map of Israel or a picture of Israel, maybe that, that Temple Mount picture. You're in Israel, just to the east is the Mount of Olives. And a mile and a half from Jerusalem, on the other side of the Mount of Olives, on the Mount of Olives is the town of Bethany. It's very close to Jerusalem and that's where that's where Lazarus is, and it's the town of Mary and Martha. It says, it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was sick. So this event in John's gospel has not happened yet. In fact, John actually tells this story in the next chapter. But because John is writing this gospel in the mid-90s A.D., He's telling an audience who already knows the people who are part of the story. And he's saying, when I'm talking about Mary and Martha and Lazarus, these are the people I'm talking about. You know that story about Mary and Martha? When Mary poured oil or fragrance or perfume on Jesus' feet and then anointed his feet with her hair and wiped? That's the woman, right? That's how close these people were. Now, the thing about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus is... Every time Jesus went to Jerusalem and was near the Mount of Olives, this is the house he stayed in. It was the house where no longer were you knocking on the door 
He was just walking right in. He was a part of the family. These people were close to Jesus. Now, these people know Jesus. They know all the stories. He stays with them when he's near Jerusalem. He hangs out in their house. They're family. And they know what Jesus has been doing. They know what's making everyone angry. Jesus is healing people. But Lazarus, who's like a brother to Jesus, is sick. It says, therefore, the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. This is what they're saying. They know who Jesus is. They're aware of him. They have a close relationship with him. They're tight. There's no boundaries. He comes in, he opens their fridge, right? They don't have a fridge, but you know what I'm saying? It's that house is like another home to him. And they say, behold, like they're shocked. Can you believe, Jesus, how do you not know? Lazarus is sick. And they're saying, what the context is, Lazarus is dying. What are you going to do? We know you're healing strangers. Lazarus, who's like your brother, is sick. He's dying. And they're shocked by this. But listen to what they say. They don't ask Jesus to heal him. They just say, Jesus. The one you love is sick. That's it. Now, I think about this, and I think about the intimacy of the relationship between Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and how close they are, and how they've become a family because they spent time with Jesus. Because of the amount of time they spent living with him, dwelling with him, they don't even have to ask. They just tell God what's on their plate. Imagine thinking like that in our prayers. If we said, God, the one you love is sick because you know his character. That's what they're doing. So when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And what we see here is this picture of Jesus's God-like character. Jesus's divinity is pictured in here because he says it's not unto death, even though Lazarus is dying. But Jesus sees the end from the beginning, and he knows the end result. And we're not going to get there today. So spoiler alert, Lazarus dies, and Jesus raises him from the dead. But Jesus sees the end from the beginning. He's predicting this, and he's predicting that what Lazarus is going through is going to be God-honoring. This is very contradictory to what we like to talk about in modern church. Sometimes suffering honors God. Sometimes it's not about how good things are that gives God glory, but our faithfulness through the difficulty. And Jesus is saying, this is a difficult thing. 
but it is for the honor of God. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Uh, that's an interesting statement. And it is not what you would expect. It starts out saying, Jesus loved them. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Jesus loved them. And then the next word is so, meaning the result of that love, out of the love that Jesus had for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he went immediately to Lazarus. That's not what it says. Out of the love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he stayed two more days. He didn't react immediately. This means God's timing is better than yours. We live in an instant gratification society and an instant gratification culture. And sometimes we think if God didn't answer my prayer tomorrow, that he wasn't listening. But God's timing is better than ours. And sometimes going through the fire is exactly what he wants you to do. Going through the difficulty will pay off in the end. And this story and the end result is Lazarus goes all the way to the grave. And Jesus shows up four days after Lazarus died and Lazarus has been in the tomb. And he raises Lazarus to life. Now, Jesus could raise Lazarus after four days of death. It's no surprise that he could raise himself after three. But this is a story where death turns to life because God's glory is bigger than our circumstance. And sometimes suffering produces God's glory. Not a popular thing to say, but it's true. So he stayed two more days instead of immediately going to them. So after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Can you imagine? Those two days aren't recorded. Doesn't seem like anything of note happened. So why didn't Jesus act? And finally, his disciples, he tells them, let's go to Judea. And the disciples say to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews have sought to stone you, and are you going there again? And now the disciples are scared. They're saying, Jesus, why? Why would we go down there? That's where the people who want to kill you are. And, you know, we're guilty by association. So if they want to kill you, they want to kill us. Why would we go there? This doesn't seem like a smart plan. This also tells us that the disciples didn't plead with Jesus to go save Lazarus. Which is interesting to me. But they, they're, they're pleading with him. What, what are you thinking? Now, it doesn't matter that Jesus has already predicted his time. It doesn't matter that he's he said over and over again that it's not my time yet. It doesn't matter that they've escaped people wanting to stone Jesus on multiple occasions, they still are concerned with every instance 
of the people who want to kill Jesus as though he's not the one in control. That's a unique understanding of the human condition. We're still in the flesh, no matter how close we are to Jesus. And these people traveled with him for three and a half years. They camped and ministered and saw him do miracles. They saw him escape the death and judgment multiple times. And still, they're still scared and they still don't see him as entirely in control. And how interesting is it that the followers of Jesus are concerned for his well-being? Jesus is God. He doesn't need our help. But there's still something interesting about us, how we think we know better. So they tell him, I don't know if this is a good idea. So Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These, thing, these things he said, and after that he said, that, said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go, that I may wake him up. So Jesus' answer is basically, um, Do you not know who you're with? Jesus has said he's the light of the world. If you're with the light, if the light is in you, you won't stumble. You know, this reminds me of some of the stuff Jesus said, and that's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, where he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough worry of its own. He, he tells the people, look at the sparrow and the birds of the air and the grasses of the field. If God dresses the world and the animals like that, how much more does he care about you? Don't worry. God's got your back. And he's saying, do you not know who you're with? I've got it under control. So our friend Lazarus is asleep. I'm going to wake him up. And his disciples respond cluelessly, saying, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. Because they think, well, if he's sleeping, that means he's getting better. That's a great remedy for getting sick. And we still do that today. I take advantage of that every time I get sick. Unfortunately, I don't get sick that often, so I don't get as many naps as I would like. But that is one of the ways we recover. And so they're thinking, Lazarus is sleeping. He's going to get better. However, Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. So then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I love this moment because you have this rabbi, this teacher, Jesus, He's God. He has grabbed these, these guys out of obscurity. Fishermen, tax collectors, you know, just out of the depths of society. People who were never qualified to follow a rabbi. And he's trying to tell them what he's doing, and they go, I don't get it. And so finally Jesus says, all right, guys, Lazarus, is dead. Do you understand? But that's great. That's great news because those of us who are called to Jesus and called to ministry and called to spread the gospel means we don't have to be that intelligent because these were the people Jesus handpicked. And so that puts me in good company. So when I sound a little slow, that's okay, because Jesus handpicked those who seemed to not be qualified. 
and he gave them the power they needed to do the work. So you don't have to worry about having a degree in theology or apologetics or a Bible studies degree. You don't have to worry about that. Jesus called fishermen to preach the gospel. He said, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go with him. So after Jesus says to the disciples to make them understand, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. The next thing he says is, I'm glad. Not the emotion you would think would be coming out of someone who just lost someone very close to them. But Jesus knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's really going to happen. And he says, he's not glad that Lazarus is dead. He's glad that he wasn't there because what they're going to see is going to help them believe. Because I imagine this is one of the moments that helps them understand the resurrection. When Jesus came out of the grave, when Jesus walked out of the tomb and appeared to them in the upper room and showed them his wounds, this probably helped them understand his power to do so. He's saying, this is for you so that you can believe. So let us go to him. And Thomas... Thomas, who is called the twin, or Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, this is by far, in this set of 16 verses, maybe my favorite one. Because Thomas has a bad rap. Usually when you hear something in a sermon about Thomas, you hear about doubting Thomas. You hear about how after Jesus' resurrection, Thomas refused to believe. He said, I will not believe that this is the case. He was so distraught and so concerned and so lost after Jesus's death. He thought everything was over and he said, I can't believe it. I won't believe it until I see his wounds, until I put my fingers into his side. I won't believe it. And that's the image we have of Thomas, this doubter, this one who couldn't get over the hurdle, who couldn't believe until Jesus showed up into a locked room. He just appeared. And he said, Thomas, it's me. Look at my wounds. Look at my hands. Put your finger in my side. It's me. And then he believed. But this is a moment that maybe Thomas should be more famous for. Now, he's not saying anything particularly encouraging. But what he is saying is really faith-filled. Now, he's traveled with Jesus for three years. We're only a couple of months away from the crucifixion and the resurrection. This is somewhere between the winter and spring, somewhere between Hanukkah and Passover. And Jesus's ministry, his earthly ministry is almost complete. He's been with Jesus for over three years. And he spent time with him and he understands who he is. And in Jesus's presence, Thomas is bold because of what it's like to be in Jesus's presence. And so what does Jesus say? Now, the other disciples have already said, Jesus, if we go there, people are going to want to kill you. And Thomas's response to that is, let's go die with him. 
Thomas was bold. He didn't care because he knew who Jesus was and he was bold in Jesus's presence. And he says, I'm willing to lay down my life for you. Let's go see Lazarus. Let's do what Jesus wants to do because he's confident in his rabbi. He's confident in Jesus. And he's willing to sacrifice himself for what Jesus wants to do. That's a mentality I need to be better at. And I need to have. Am I willing to suffer the sacrifice for what God has called me to do, for what Jesus needs to happen in the world because I'm so confident in who he is and the reward that I receive that I'm willing to say, Jesus, I'll go where you tell me to go. And if it means I die, I die. Now, we live in a place where that's not quite likely to happen, at least at the moment. But man, what boldness. And that boldness comes out of the relationship that he has with Jesus. The more time you spend with him, the better you know him, the more confident you are in who he is and what his promises are to you. And the better you understand the glory of eternity and that it's not this world that we live for, but to spend eternity with him that we live for. And so what we see in this 16 verses is a group of people who spent time with Jesus. And the time they spent with him reflects in their personality. It reflects in their intimacy with him and their confidence. Mary and Martha don't even ask. They just say, the one you love is sick. They spent so much time with Jesus and they were so close with Jesus, they knew how Jesus felt about them. They knew that Jesus loved him. And they were willing to state it to him. Jesus, the one you love, is sick. If we spend enough time with him, if we spend enough time in his word, if we spend enough time in prayer, we can grasp that Jesus loves us. How much he loves us, and we can go to him confidently and say, the one you love needs you. Thomas, of all the disciples, one we don't hear about other than his doubt, is the one who says, if Jesus says we're going, let's go. Let's die with him. I'm happy to do it. Because he's so confident in his rabbi. Now, the introduction to this story, which I'm not going to go through the verses because we're going to deal with this story when we get into the next chapter of John. But a couple of months later, right, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. This family whom Jesus had spent so much time with that he was basically part of the family. Six days before the Passover, meaning six days before Jesus gets crucified, two days before he goes into Jerusalem on a donkey, Mary sees Jesus, and she takes this bottle of perfume. This bottle of perfume that's worth about, in common day, $10,000. This must be her most precious possession. And she pours it on Jesus. Pours it on his, on his hair and on his feet. And then she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. 
that seem weird now? But the humility. She took her most materially prized possession and poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped her hair on his feet. And Jesus' response is that she is preparing him for burial because he knows what's coming. But after seeing everything that Jesus had done up to that point, and seemingly she seemed to understand where he was headed, she was willing to give up everything. The thing that was worth most to her, she gave up and poured it on Jesus and just handed it to his feet and laid there at his feet because Jesus is worth it. Because she spent enough time with him to know that Jesus is worth it. That Jesus was worth giving up her life for, giving up her material possessions for. And she understood maybe better than anyone because she had seen him not just heal strangers, but raise her brother from the dead and eventually see Jesus die and raise himself from the dead. And she gave it all over to him. And where does all of this confidence come from? From spending time with Jesus. That's who we are. We're the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. When the church gathers, God tells us when two or more are gathered, he is there. Galatians tells us that we are dead with Christ. Yet, we who live, it's not us who lives. It's Christ living in us and through us. We can experience and spend time with Jesus now and gain confidence in him through our prayers, through our time together and supporting one another and helping each other out. Jesus said that, told us to love one another, and that's how the world will know that you're my disciples. And to spend time in his word and to really understand who he is. So the point of today is this. The reaction of these people in this story is because of their proximity to Jesus. Because they spent enough time with him to know that they could be confident in who he is and that he was, they were willing to give up everything, their lives and their best possessions, for him because Jesus is worth it. So I'm going to invite Lindsay and Nate to come back up here because Jesus is worthy of our praise. And so we're going to close our service out by praising because Jesus is worthy of it. So I'm going to pray, and at the end of the prayer, I'll ask you to stand so that we can sing praises together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this story. Thank you for these people. God, I pray that we learn something today. And I pray that we're motivated to spend more time with you and to be more intimate with you and to have confidence in you. Because God, the more time we spend with you, the more confident we are and the more understanding we are that you are worthy of our lives and of our praise. So God, I pray that tonight we close out praising you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.